0: Welcome to Audacious Water, the podcast about how to create a world of water abundance for everyone. I'm John Sabo, director of the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. On today's show, how can we experiment at a landscape scale to reduce nutrient runoff from agriculture? My guest is Lisa Schulte-Moore a landscape ecologist and Iowa State University professor who was named a MacArthur Fellow in 2021 for her work integrating strips of native prairie vegetation with crops to reduce soil erosion and nitrogen and phosphorus runoff. Coming up, I talk with Lisa about how Iowa agriculture and Mississippi River water quality are related, what it means to see a landscape experimentally, and the key factors in scaling her discoveries. Welcome to the show, Lisa.
1: Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Excited to connect again.
0: Yeah, this is great. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So let's think about where we are. You're in Iowa, and I'm in Louisiana. We're connected in spirit by the Mississippi River, which is a river that drains 32 U.S. states and two Canadian provinces. And we think a lot about water quality down here. It's two questions. The first is, how bad is water quality in the Mississippi, and why is Iowa relevant? to Louisiana in that context.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know you could answer this first question better than, than I could being aquatic ecologist, right? So I'm going to start with that second one and then let you rip on the first one.
0: <laughs> uh, okay. Fair enough.
1: Fair enough. Yes. Yes. Maybe I'll just start out by saying that, you know, I'm a landscape ecologist and I look at sort of the human landscape interactions and how the human component interacts with the natural world and results in the patterns that we see as we fly across the landscape and what that means in terms of both the environmental benefits provided by those landscapes as well as how people enjoy those. So with that second question that you asked, Iowa, uh, located here in the upper Mississippi River Basin, Most of people know about Iowa as the corn state, right? We grow a lot of corn in Iowa, as well as a lot of soybeans. That corn and soybeans is largely fed to animals. So, so much of the raw material in our food system, that corn and soybeans, while they're not directly consumed by people, they make up other components of our food system. So think about the eggs that you may have eaten for breakfast the bacon that you're gonna have on the side with your pancakes this weekend, or maybe your burger some evening, there's a good chance that there's a connection to the of that food back here to Iowa. We're really proud as a state that we're first in the nation in terms of corn production. Often we're competing with Illinois on soybean production, so we're usually second there, but we grow the most hogs, we produce the most eggs, We're fifth in cattle production, and then also first in ethanol and all sorts of bioproducts. Iowa is first. And I know some of those topics are really controversial, especially in some portions of the U.S., but I think it's important for your audience to realize that these are points of pride for Iowans, right? And especially any Iowan that is involved in agriculture. Now, There's unintended consequences that go along with those statistics that I just shared with you, right? So the fact that we've covered approximately 75% of our state with just two crops, corn and soybeans, means that there's not a lot of natural systems left here to sort of absorb the human impacts on a variety of environmental outcomes, including water quality. And we know in particular that corn and soybeans are very leaky crops when it comes to the nutrients that farmers apply to the fields to make those crops grow, especially nitrogen. You know, it tends to leach out through the soil profile and move into groundwater or what we call tile water, which makes its way out into surface water. So think about our streams and rivers, right? There's a pretty direct shunt of that fertilizer, that nitrogen fertilizer, down through the soil profile into what we call tiles, drainage pipes, and then out to our streams. Phosphorus, on the other hand, usually moves above the surface, the majority of it, although some of the dissolved phosphorus is also moving, you know, like nitrogen does, that phosphorus is generally moving across the land as rain falls on the land and moves soil particles as it concentrates again that phosphorus is going to make it into our streams and rivers where it becomes a potent pollutant so these fertilizers the nitrogen the phosphorus farmers need that in their fields it's what you know propels crop growth but you know as you know as soon as it gets into our water that's where it becomes a problem because of excess nutrients.
0: So tell me about nitrogen and phosphorus. Why are they bad? Why are they potent pollutants? What do they do to a stream?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, we're both ecologists, but some of my listeners might not know that connection.
1: Right, right. Well, not only is are there organisms on land that can consume that nitrogen and phosphorus, there's organisms in the water that can also consume that nitrogen and phosphorus. And in particular, in the water, algae will use those fertilizers to propel their own growth. Algae is a natural component of any aquatic system. If you're walking along a riverside, you you can oftentimes see a little bit of green algae on rocks. You may see suspended algae in the water column with a greenish tinge. And a little bit of algae is a natural part of any aquatic system what becomes a problem is when that algae becomes too abundant, right? Just think about walking along that stream and like all the rocks are covered with a ton of algal growth, right? Think about that water, not having just a slight greenish tinge, but just like putrid (laughs) green (laughs) with algal growth. Now that's a problem for all aquatic organisms because, um, You know, just like us, they need to breathe oxygen and that algae, because it's so abundant, it tends to consume all of the oxygen. And then that oxygen isn't available for the life of other aquatic organisms. So it's a problem in several ways. It's a problem in terms of the, you know, obviously aesthetics, right, of our aquatic systems. It's a problem from the standpoint of trying to clean up drinking water. For us as people to drink it, so you know, removing that algae and then just removing the nutrients too, especially nitrogen, to make it potable for people, healthy for people to drink, and then it's a problem in terms of our native biota, that stream ecosystem, not having the diverse suite of biota that we would expect to see as a part of that that ecosystem. But then also, you know, streams are just such an important source of life for terrestrial ecosystems as well. So you don't have that stream biota there to then support also the the terrestrial wildlife.
0: That's great. So from a perspective of an Iowan and a scientist, how do you fix that in Iowa? Let's not think about the whole Mississippi, but what have been some of your strategies to address that?
1: Well, there's a whole lot of action going on in this space and in Iowa and, you know, really diverse perspectives about how to best go about approaching cleaning up our our streams. The first thing I want to really emphasize is that, you know, in my work with farmers, I emphasize that the declines in water quality Farmers don't intend to pollute the water, you know, through what they're doing on their farm fields, right? They want clean water too. So to really emphasize that we are all in this together. And, you know, it's not the goal of farmers to put too many nutrients on their field because they don't care about water quality. You know, that's I think oftentimes we hear these simplified sort of tropes, right?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I've heard also that. Farmers are the best stewards of the land, right? So
1: yeah, another trope, right? There's a lot of complexity in terms of agricultural land management and, you know, and a lot of challenges in terms of trying to move forward solutions. The particular solution that I've been most involved with, and I've been approaching this challenge from multiple perspectives, you know, through the lens of, you know, just better understanding what the window of operation farmers have in terms of altering what they do, building computer models and online decision making tools to you know, try to figure out ways to be more strategic about land or agricultural land use. You know, I've looked at this in a multiple different ways. The way one of the projects that has had the most success with farmers has been a project that we call the Strips Project or Prairie Strips. Strips stands for Science Based Trials of Row Crops Integrated with Prairie Strips. And the interdisciplinary team that I've worked with on that project, you know, I've been working on this since 2005, a long time now, right? The interdisciplinary team that I work with, we first came to design the prairie strips practice and actually implement it in a pilot setting and collect data on how it was working. The data turned out to be pretty impressive, and so that resulted in our working with farmers to actually put prairie strips on their field. And then because we had that science and because we had that farmer participation, Prairie strips actually ended up in the 2018 Farm Bill as a conservation reserve program eligible practice, which now that program can be used to help farmers pay for the costs of putting prairie strips on their land.
0: That's remarkable. That's so cool. There's so many things that I want to follow up on. The first one is when you use the word impressive, we had impressive evidence. Tell me what that looks like because you and I are both science geeks, not from a science geek point of view but from the point of view of the stakeholders that you had to engage what really pushed it over the edge for them
1: yeah that's a great question well the first thing I would say is that you know the farmers that I work with or when I'm working with a farmer audience presenting the farmer audience I find that you know farmers are very data savvy right They use data all the time to influence how they manage their crops, what varieties they plant, which crop they're putting on, what field, you know, how much fertilizer to put on, when to apply, pesticides, those kind of things. So I find that they're very data savvy. So the lens that we've always approached farmers is through this database lens. So the STRIPS experiment that we established back in 2007, what we did is we had this idea of, well, we know that a key thing that needs to happen if we wanna address not only water quality, but several challenges with agricultural production. Like we know one of the key things that we need to do is just integrate in more perennial vegetation. When I first got to Iowa State in 2003, that's what I kept hearing from people on campus. Here is like, if we could just get more perennials in the system, it would fix it, right? And so, we designed the strips experiment with sort of that idea in mind. But instead of just you know doing any perennial anywhere, we were really thoughtful about what we were putting on the landscape and where we put it. What we chose in terms of the perennial was reconstructed native prairie vegetation. And so the idea is, it's, you know, we're taking the Midwest native land cover type, the native vegetation that was here, prairie, right, which is adapted, the plants are well adapted to our climate, it's well adapted to our soils, and our native biota are well adapted to it. So we didn't take, say, for example, smooth brome, which is the conservation cover that farmers typically plant on their crop fields when they're they're looking to address some resource constraints. We chose native prairie for the because it's natural, you know, it's native to this place. We chose that because we thought if we're gonna be able to detect any kind of effect in a short time in an experiment, in terms of a difference between a you know annual corn soybeans versus a perennial type we figured that prairie had the best chance of being able to show a a big difference. So we chose native prairie. We sowed it into crop fields. Again, we're very strategic about where we put it. First of all, we put it at the bottom of the crop field because we wanted to provide a filter for water moving across the landscape. And then also a filter for water moving beneath the landscape, right? We wanted to have that living vegetation intercept that water as it was running off the landscape, and then also have that interaction between the roots and the groundwater, right, to be able to take up nutrients that were moving with that groundwater. So we put prairie strips at the bottom. In some of the treatments, we also put prairie strips on on the contour, at multiple points up a hill slope. And the idea there being that again, we wanted the land, that vegetation, to interact with the water as it was moving. You know, down the hill slope or through the hill slope, again, getting that opportunity for that water and the vegetation to interact. And then the other part of that is we wanted to slow down the water as it was moving across the field so that that prairie vegetation is providing something of a speed bump within that field, slowing it down and hopefully you know, reducing the erosive power of that water you know, just kind of a fun way to think about it, maybe for your listeners, in some ways we've compared sort of the prairie strips on the hill slope uphill in the catchment as speed bumps. Think about that one in that lowest landscape position on the edge as a diaper, right? We want to catch things before they end up in our streams and rivers, right?
0: That's amazing. I want to get back to the impact, but I want to stop for a second because there are two really important Concepts that you brought up there that I think are relevant to other podcasts in this series and to other efforts, I think, that are similar, but not in the agricultural space. So, the first is experiments, and the second is engineering. You know, you and I are scientists, we're trained as scientists, but what we're talking about here is some mix of engineering and science, right? So, let's talk about the science first, the experiments. Why are the experiments so important?
1: Yeah, well. We can't value what we don't quantify, <laughs> at least in the system I work in. That's true, right? Where the land values for farming here are so high that, you know, farmers need to be able to make quantitative sense for the decisions that they make on their land.
0: Right. Yeah
1: yeah and hopefully well in the long run well both short term and long it, it also has to it's not just quantifying the benefits in terms of numerically but you know what we're working toward in the overall research program that i'm involved with is making that dollars right those environmental services make dollars for farmers
0: totally makes sense i'll come back to that in a sec i want to go back to experiments because most people don't have training and experimental design. So when you say quantify, I think what you mean is you have these treatments that have different locations of prairie strips, and then you have a control that you can compare it to, which is business as usual, right? So if you do this, this is the benefit is kind of the value proposition of the farmer Mm -hmm. and you have the direct control. And then the dollars and cents piece is so important because tell me about the costs of doing this. And I know this circles back to the, the farm bill policy. How does it get done and how does it end up making them more money or does it?
1: Yeah, let's put a pin in that for a moment. And first, I'm going to tell you about some of the things that we did quantify. Okay, Okay. good.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we we'll put a pin in Before that. Before
1: we lose that. Yeah, so the, in our particular experiment, the control is corn-soybean agriculture. You know, one year it's going to be corn, one year it's going to be soybean. And in this particular experiment, we used what's called no-till soil management technique where the farmer wasn't, you know, tilling the soil annually, but using a specific mechanism to plant the seeds and with weed control, you know, prepare the seedbed, plant the seed, provide weed control, add the nutrients in which the soil, there's minimal soil disturbance. That's really important in this. So the control is the corn, soybean, no-till. We had three different treatments. One was that diaper configuration, right? Where we put 10% prairie, but all at the base of a a catchment, all before it would, you know, the water would leave that catchment. Another that was again, 10% prairie, but with multiple patches of prairie, and running along the contour within the catchment, right? So linear strips running along the contour. And then the third treatment was just like that second one, but it was 20%, prairie made up 20% of the catchment. And what we found in the nutshell is that when you put a little bit of prairie in, it makes a big difference in terms of the environmental outcomes. And we saw almost no difference in terms Of whether it was a 10% prairie treatment or a 20% prairie treatment. We also found a few differences in the 44 measures that we took in terms of whether the prairie was all at the base of the catchment or whether there were multiple prairie strips running along the contour. The big difference is just having that little bit of prairie within that crop field. Now, some of the specific measures we found were. 95% less soil being lost from that catchment. So we're, you know, keeping the soil in the field where farmers want it, as opposed to letting it run off and out of that system.
0: You said 95%?
1: 95%.
0: That's huge. That's, yeah, unarguable.
1: Yeah. And that measure right there is by far the most compelling to farmers. As, you know, the farmer cooperator on the project who managed the crops around the prairie strips, the way Gary puts it is if you farm, you do not want to lose your soil, right? <laughs> That's a crucial resource for them. So that one right there is is what has been really compelling. But they also don't want to lose their nutrients, right? They pay for those too. And so what we've shown is that you know, you put that pre strip solution in and you can keep 77% more of your phosphorus in the field and 70% more of your nitrogen. And we've looked at nitrogen, both moving with runoff water and then also nitrogen moving with groundwater. Got to give a shout out to my colleague, Matt Helmers, who's the hydrologist on the project and his, his team has collected those numbers.
0: You use we and everything you say, and I'll come back to that at the end.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, those are sort of the soil and water measures. Uh, We've since shown that we can build soil health underneath the prairie strips over time. And that data is very compelling to farmers as well. If they're looking for, you know, areas of their farm fields that have been degraded over time and are, are wanting to see, you know, to regenerate those soils, prairie strips can provide that service. We've also shown that there are benefits in terms of reduced greenhouse gas emissions. My colleague, Mike Castellano, here at Iowa State and former postdoc, have shown that if you put the prairie strip in that lowest position, so that diaper position that I mentioned, that you can reduce the nitrous oxide emissions by 70%. Nitrous oxide is an extremely potent greenhouse gas with 300 times as much global warming potential as carbon dioxide. So that's hugely important in terms of environmental impacts of agriculture as well. And then we also have looked at biodiversity measures, and we've shown that again, that 10% prairie strip solution, we can double the bird biodiversity using that crop field and we can triple the pollinator abundance. So we can address soil, water, we can address greenhouse gas emissions, we can address biodiversity according to multiple taxa. Now the question is like how to pay for it, right?
0: (laughs) Coming up, I ask Lisa how she gets farmers to buy into implementing her findings and how she thinks about the differences between science and engineering in her world. Well, I have like at least 10 other questions, but let's start with that. More from the farmer perspective, is there bang for the buck in doing it?
1: Yeah. So we've looked at this from multiple perspectives and, you know, how to pay for it, I would say is about how I spend 90% of my time these days. Because even though, you know, when you put up the graph and you say, 95% 95 percent more soil, you know, 70 percent more nitrogen. You double the birth, You know, you put all the benefits. Then the farmer looks at the end, and you say and looks at well. But you're talking about taking 10 percent of my acres and taking out of corn and soybeans, right? And corn and soybeans is what pays the bills. And 10 percent is a huge amount. That is very much could be the difference between profit and loss for a farmer. They work on very thin margins. And so that 10%, you know, they recognize all the benefits, like, yes, they want that stuff too, but you got to keep the farm, (laughs) you got to send the kids to college, you got to put food on the table, just like all of us, right? And so that has really been my focus, you know, how to pay for it. We've looked at, as I mentioned, in many different ways. One way that we've looked at it is- and every farmer knows this is that not all acres are equal in terms of corn and soybean productivity. And corn and soybeans are really expensive crops to grow. Just think about the seed costs, think about the fertilizer costs, think about the diesel to run, you know, the tractor, right? They are very expensive crops to grow. So, you know, there are some areas of their fields that are really they're in corn and soybeans for sort of traditional reasons, when you look at all the costs involved, they might not actually provide income to the farmer, right? Because the costs are higher than, well, because the yield just isn't good enough to overcome the cost of production on those acres. So one of the things we've looked at is, okay, well, can we put prairie strips? To what extent can we address the environmental constraints of the land? by putting prairie strips on the acres that aren't pulling their weight anyway in terms of the profitability on the farm. And so, yeah, we've built models and produced maps, shared some of those data with farmers to be like, okay, well, if you're looking at prairie strips on your land, let's first consider what your yields are and where you know, the profit from corn and soybeans might not be, where you might not have any profit, right? Where the costs are not exceed the income. So that's one way that we've looked at it. Another way we've looked at it is prairie strips by being able to cover some of the costs that farmers incur through various programs. And that's where the Farm Bill, the CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program associated with the Farm Bill is so important. So what the Conservation Reserve Program will do is say, okay, well, you wanna put prairie strips on your land in these areas, you know, if you can do it in a way that matches the program constraints, we, the federal government, can compensate you for those acres. And they will pay farmers rent. They will basically rent those acres from the farmer so that they don't have, you know, the cost of the corn and soybean production, plus they get the income from the federal government. And the idea is that we, the taxpayers, are paying for the environmental benefits that land generates, And that's how we can compensate the farmer is basically for producing those environmental benefits on those acres. The next area that we're looking at is prairie. It can be very productive once it's established, you know, growing about not going to know the number in tons. (laughs) Here's where the science part comes in, right? between about two to five tons per acre per year of biomass. And we know that prairie is a vegetation type and needs disturbance. It was established historically, You know our prairies were managed or affected by a combination of ungulate grazers, as well as you know, Native American fire. So to maintain a good prairie stand, we do need to remove that biomass periodically. So the next thing that we're working on is like, can we harvest that prairie biomass that's grown on these prairie strips acres and then actually turn it into usable products that are demanded by society? So for example, energy or some kind of materials or chemicals that we're already using as a part of our society. But right now they're coming from petrochemicals, right? Wouldn't it be really cool if we could derive those from biomass? And then we could also pay farmers for that material that they grow through the prairie strip, the biomass.
0: I mean, just to kind of play back what you said, it sounds like you're layering benefit for them, layering revenue streams, if you will, some of them. Exactly. That's super creative. And I think it's probably enough on experiments and outcomes, but there is one more thing that I want to talk about. And you mentioned it early in the interview that you're a landscape ecologist and you talked about seeing things from the plane. And I want you to describe, because I think for most people, experiments are these things that happen in test tubes, right? Where you can measure the gas coming off after you put a a base in a, or an acid in a vial of Coke or something like that, you know, it's, it's something really simple. So, but you see the landscape from a perspective that most people don't. And you design experiments to address them. Tell me about inspiration for that, maybe? Like, how did you get interested in that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. How did I get interested in that?
0: <laughs> Is it because you, from the plane, you saw these things and they kind of sparked ideas about things that you could do? Or do you actually close your eyes and see the landscape and imagine the experiments? You know what I mean? Like, some people are very visual about how they ideate.
1: Yeah, two parts to this first of all i love science i love the discovery process right the kinds of questions it's cliche but you know we know less about the world than we know right <laughs> i love the discovery process that said it pains me when my science only stays in journals Right. That is like literally painful to me, like to just you know, publish a paper in a journal to sit on some dusty library shelf. Right. So the motivation I have as a scientist is not only to do the research, but to make sure that it has a chance to get actually implemented in our world. So that is just the lens through which I'm approaching the science that I do. It's use inspired to use the NSF terminology, right?
0: Solutions oriented, use inspired. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Stopping at that step of, you know, just publishing it, but figuring out then how to connect it to the community that could actually make use of it.
0: Yeah. Right? Well, I would add one feather to your cap, which is, and we talked about this in Leopold training a lot, kind of the bright spot philosophy instead of the crisis philosophy, right? You know, I I think you have a we can do philosophy that is not that common in science, not that common in policy. And I think linking the we can do across that boundary is really super important.
1: Yeah. Just to kind of underscore that, one of my colleagues, <laughs> you know, he said, Lisa, for better or worse, you just don't take no for an answer. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, it's always like, okay, if not right now, when? (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Or
0: if not this way, another way, right? Like I think the question I was getting at with how do you envision these experiments, I just want to say this. When you described the fields along contours, I saw like a Georgia O'Keeffe painting in my mind, right? Right.
1: Yes. And if you've seen any of the pictures that we've, the team has taken of prairie strips and, you know, part of news articles and such, they are gorgeous, right? We are not only introducing this function back into the agricultural landscapes, like we are repainting these landscapes in really beautiful ways. It's just, yeah, like, you know, some of the imagery is just mind-blowing when you see the complexity of you know the prairie strips next to the highly engineered <laughs> right highly arranged landscape of the corn and soybean right next to it and it just makes such a, a gorgeous contrast especially during high summer when everything is so green and productive and blooming in the prairie what I want to say you know for your listeners is that while the pictures are beautiful, It's nothing like actually being out there on the landscape, like the beauty times 10 or 100, right? And just one story to kind of share to bring that home. One day I was out helping one of my graduate students do work on birds. This isn't the water piece right now. It's the wildlife piece. Birds were looking at nest success of birds and comparing, you know, the crop fields prairie strips to other more traditional conservation features like the brome, you know, the smooth brome that I mentioned. There was a nest that needed to be checked to see if it was the actual eggs had hatched and the young had fledged. And Vesper Sparrow's nest was in the middle of like 160 acre cornfield. And it was early July and, you know, it was like 90 degrees, humid, and I knew that Vesper Sparrow Nest had failed, but you, you got to collect the data, right? You can't assume. You have to go out and actually collect the data, right? So I walked whatever it was, like the half mile, you know, through, you know, parting the corn <laughs> all the way, you know, to get to this Vesper Sparrow Nest.
0: Like swimming through it. Yes. it was,
1: yeah, swimming through it and the humid air, right? And I get there. And of course, there's no eggs anymore. You know, I could see where that's been smashed, right? And there are no young. So we collected the data. But as I was sitting there, you know, I was, I was just listening. And it was literally me and the corn. All I could hear was like a little bit of wind rustling in the corn and no other noise. And so then I had to leave that cornfield and go back to an area of the farm that had the prairie strips. And so I Walk the, you know, now three quarters of a mile back (laughs) through the corn, you know, to where the prairie strips were. And as I was approaching the prairie strips, it was getting louder and louder and louder. And I get to the prairie strips and it is just brimming with life, right? There's crickets chirping, there's bees buzzing, there's birds, you know, flying around and squawking at me to be there, and many, many different species, right? I can hear the wind now in the prairie strip as well. I can you know, see all the color of the flowers in the prairie strip. And it's just like, it was like two different worlds. Right. And the fact that one was alive and one wasn't had everything to do with having that prairie there.
0: That's so powerful. And it's so, I mean, clearly you have bar graphs that show this and science will bless you for that, but it's hard to quantify what you just told the story you just told with data. Right. You almost have to be there. That's super interesting. And that kind of encapsulates what I was thinking when I was imagining. And I have seen pictures of your treatment, so I know what they look like. And a picture is worth a thousand words to a certain extent, but I appreciate the the comment that being there and seeing the difference in all senses is much more powerful. Mm -hmm. That's super cool. Okay, well, we're going to switch to a nerdier topic. I love the art conversation. My mom was an artist. My dad was an engineer. So I balanced that dichotomy every day of my life. So let's go back to engineering because you mentioned drawing, and my, the first word was for me was "oh, she's designing functionally sustainable landscapes," and that takes us to engineering as well. Because if you wanted to do that at scale, it would be an engineering company doing that at scale, right? CH2M, for example, or or something like that, building Iowa sustainably or something to that magnitude. Can you, can you talk about that first? Like, again, I'm going to ask you two different questions, and you can take either one or take one or the other in, in order, but the difference between science and engineering and how you manage that, and the second is more about which one is more important
1: for scaling. Mm-hmm. Well, first thing is, you know, coming back to the can-do attitude, I love working with engineers for that very reason. Right, they really do have can do attitudes, and it's okay. What's the problem? You know, how do we fix it? (laughs) Solutions orientation. So, the second thing I would say is that this Iowa landscape is an incredibly engineered landscape. We sometimes joke about this here is that Iowa is the most altered state right, I already talked about the land cover, right, about 75% corn and soybeans, about 85% agricultural, right, it has the highest amount of agricultural land cover of any state in the U.S., and so, you know, the human domination, the human signature on that is, you can see it, you know, <laughs> there's <laughs> there's very little natural element left as you would fly across the Iowa landscape, The other part I would say is it's not just engineered on the surface, right? The whole landscape has been re-engineered below ground too, getting back to that tile drainage that I mentioned, right? Putting in pipes basically underneath the ground to uh, remove water such that, because it's too wet here through much of parts of the year, right? For corn and soybean production. So to raise the the productivity of the landscape, especially for soybean. Our landscape has been altered on top as well as, you know, underneath. It's the most altered state in the U.S., right? So this gets back to some of my inspiration in many ways as a landscape ecologist. And here I'll, I'll really emphasize, you know, the ecology part, right? Where I grew up studying natural systems, right? The Iowa landscape in so many ways It feels like a blank slate, right? It's a blank canvas for somebody like me. Let's put more diverse landscape elements back on here. Let's repaint the arrangement of patches within this landscape. And so there is this design element. You know, we're starting with this blank slate and we're adding back in these elements. To hopefully, you know, address some of the productivity and profitability concerns for farmers, right, as I mentioned before, because it's corn and soybeans that pays the bill for them, or bringing in the policies that allow them to make different decisions on that landscape by helping to, you know, repaint what profitability can look like for them on that landscape. And certainly being really strategic about where we put these different landscape elements in to try to maximize the benefit to society, because we want to get the most environmental bang for that taxpayer dollar.
0: Uh, So much good stuff there. I mean, the idea of design and a blank canvas that's super powerful. And in another realm, another aspect of water sustainability, I've always thought of Empty aquifers is our biggest opportunity for resilience. And the blank slate has a similar, let's turn the crisis into bright spot kind of feel to it. And I, I think it could be very powerful, especially in the policy realm, to speak of it like that, because you could do anything with a canvas. It doesn't have to be full of native vegetation. And so you can imagine a lot of pleasing designs that are, that are win-wins in a lot of ways, right? So I love that. Okay. One last question. I want to turn back to how do we finance this? And you have a lot of good ideas in this space. And I just want to preface it by saying that, you know, one of the answers that I always give when people ask me, how are we going to fix water systems to make them more resilient is that, well, we had the new deal, but we're not going to have a newer deal where the government comes in and pays for everything. You know, and we have the IIJA right now, which is an amazing influx of capital for infrastructure investment, but at the end of the day, it's going to take more creativity in the finance space. And you mentioned incentives. Incentives are probably the only way that the federal government is going to pay for that. Who are the other actors that need to come to the table that could come to the table and help, not pay for it all because that's not going to happen, but offset costs, de-risk projects, things like that. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your stakeholder universe, I guess is what I'm asking you. And in particular, the finance part of that
1: hmm. Yeah. Well, we had just did a stakeholder mapping exercise in my lab a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and the stakeholder universe is massive. <laughs> I'll say it, say it that way. It's massive, which, you know, is very fun, especially since I'm an extrovert, right? I like talking with people. But it's also a bit of a challenge just to, you know, connect with that many people and in, in groups in meaningful ways. But it has put me in contact with people that really see the world differently than, you know, ecologists, you know, scientists. And I've really learned through that process about what some of the opportunities are. For example, that, you know, that what I share with you about, you know, looking at the landscape instead of thinking about a soil map as cool, you know, biophysical patterns, but thinking about that as, you know, heterogeneity, maybe not in the texture of the soil, but thinking about that in terms of heterogeneity of profitability and recognizing that, you know, not all acres carry their weight in a farming operation and that there's opportunity to reduce costs for farmers, right? And by reducing costs, raising income, you know, that comes from working with farmers and then also working with businesses and thinking about that, approaching farming from that business mindset. Another sort of Way that we can think about profitability is farmers are constantly trying to to navigate or balance short term profitability with long term financial resilience. They need to be profitable in every single year.
0: I was thinking about that in particular with the soil. Like, if you have ninety five percent soil retention, then the farmer is going to make maybe less now, but but much more over the long haul because the soil has been
1: preserved, right? Right. Yeah. Keeping that soil in the field. Exactly. Exactly. So it's in the farmer's best interest to keep that soil in the field and keep it healthy. Right. But they may have to make decisions in the short term to keep them so that they are financially viable to the next year. So the worst thing for a farmer is to have a bad year and then potentially several bad years and then lose the farm. And this gets back to a whole nother conversation about being rooted to place and rooted to place for multiple generations, right? And you don't wanna be the generation that loses the family farm. So while it's in their best interest to conserve that soil in the long-term, they have to be able to be financially viable in the short-term to get to that long-term, right? So they're constantly trying to balance those things and it's a challenge. And so that's another opportunity, you know, can just about every farmer in corn and soybean farmer, cotton farmer, you know, they depend on federal supports for crop insurance. Can there be a way that crop insurance policy is modified such that, you know, those that are really doing the sustainable practices get, you know, more of their crop insurance paid for and those that, you know, are just doing the minimum on the environmental side, maybe they don't get as much of their crop insurance paid for, right? (laughs) That
0: totally makes sense. And it could be weighted. I mean, you said that the aerial coverage of prairie strips doesn't matter as much as location. So it may not be weighted by aerial coverage of it. But yeah, I get that. That sounds interesting. What about in the non-governmental space? There are a lot of big companies that engage in agriculture. And a lot of those big companies have sustainability goals, both on water and carbon. And it sounds like prairie strips solve both of them in a lot of ways. Have you engaged big companies on offsetting costs, doing these sort of corporate sustainability-oriented incentivization?
1: Yeah, definitely engaging companies in terms of getting the information out there, the science information out there. And by and large, people love it, right? They love this idea of being able to have this, I would say, you know, like a tweak intervention, right? We're not talking about converting the whole field (laughs) to something else, right? Where there's a lot of great things about corn and soybean production in terms of just people, farmers know how to manage them, right? And the infrastructure for them is developed, right? So we're not talking about totally upsetting our whole food and agricultural system, but being able to be really strategic about shoring up some of the environmental challenges associated with it that message resonates. And, you know, you can, with some of the carbon programs that are being developed, you know, transitioning some of the land into a grassland land cover, uh, farmers could help to generate carbon credits associated with that transition. And one of the really cool things is that the federal government has determined is that you, know, you can get your CRP payment for putting prairie strips in that land rental, And then you can also sell or you can help sign up for a carbon program and get a payment through a carbon program on that same acre, you know, so that you can, again, layering the economic benefits, as you said. So that is entirely possible already. So that's exciting. And these carbon programs are, are becoming more robust over time. Another project that we've engaged with here in Iowa, you, since we're, we want to bring it back to the water space, is I've engaged the city of Ames because it's close, right? It's where I live. Another partner at the Sand County Foundation is also engaging other municipalities in Iowa to work with farmers upstream of those municipalities to put in prairie strips and other conservation practices as well. And the Sand County Foundation worked with the state of Iowa to develop an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, that allows municipalities to use the nutrient reduction associated with changing those practices upstream on agricultural land and the nutrient retention benefit associated with that. The municipality can then use that nutrient retention as a part of their discharge permit associated with their wastewater treatment plants under the Clean Water Act. The uh, wastewater treatment plants have permitted levels to which they can release nitrogen or phosphorus into the stream. They need, according to federal law, right? They have to stay below their permitted discharge. And some of them they've put on all the cost effective mechanisms for you know staying within their permitted level. And the next most cost-effective way that they can stay within their permits is actually by improving the water quality coming into the plant. This is great because now we have people in urban areas, again, really connected to the farmers upstream of them, right, in financial ways, and then bridging that urban-rural divide that has developed in our society.
0: It's similar in some ways to water market.
1: Yeah, it's a payment for ecosystem services you know clean water market
0: yeah that's cool well hey this has been a super fun conversation
1: this is a lot of fun
0: that's it for this episode of audacious water if you like the show please rate or review us and tell your colleagues and friends for more information about audacious water visit our website at audaciouswater.org backslash podcast until next time i'm john Sable.